Our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 26. Luke, chapter 1, and reading from verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Let's pray together. Bring, uh, to, uh, to think about uh, getting ready for Christmas. And if you've been with us over the last few Sunday mornings during uh, Advent, uh, you'll know that you have a part to play uh, in the opening of this sermon. Does Christmas start when the minister eats his fourth Christmas lunch? Does Christmas start when Burnley are top of the championship? Does Christmas start when the England cricket team win an Ashes Test match? Does Christmas start when we light the Advent candles? That's right, we're saying over these uh, Sundays in preparation for celebrating the birth of Christ that Christmas starts with Christ. And we've been uh, looking uh, at what the Gospel writers tell us um, about the birth of Christ. We started in John's Gospel. John doesn't do uh, the nativity as such, uh, but he does speak about the birth of Jesus. And we were looking at the Word becoming flesh And we were thinking about incarnation. And then uh, last week, having considered the word, we thought about the voice. And uh, we were looking about, we're looking at John the Baptist. I am the voice of one calling in the desert to make straight the way for the Lord. So we've looked at the word and we've looked at the voice. And as we continue to prepare our minds and our hearts and our souls to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, This Sunday we're thinking about the Virgin. A couple of Sundays I I warned you that we were going to be talking about theology. Uh, 
uh, in, our, in our Sunday morning service. And uh, this morning I also need to give you a, a double warning really, because we're going to be talking about theology and sex. Okay, so that's just a warning for people there, just to get it out there. We're going to be talking about theology and sex as we consider the virgin birth, okay? In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Once again, like uh, last week when we were looking at uh, uh, John uh, preparing the way, we mentioned the similarities between John and Jesus and the fact that it was uh, an angelic uh, voice that foretold uh, their births. I like the fact that uh, God sends angels, don't you? Don't you? And uh, of course there's no reason to doubt that God still doesn't send angels. Uh, I came across this little thing that said, just before Christmas, God was looking down at the earth and saw all the bad things that were going on. He decided to send an angel down to earth to check it all out. So he called his best angel and sent him to the earth. When the angel returned, he told God, yes, things are bad. 95% of the people are bad and only 5% are good. God thought about this and thought this surely couldn't be right. So he sent a second angel down just to get a second opinion. But when the second angel returned, it was the same news. 95% of the people are bad and 5% are good. God thought this is not good. So he decided he was going to send an email to the 5% that were good and he wanted to encourage them and give them something to keep them going. And do you know what the email said? Obviously, you didn't get one either. <laughs> well, Mary certainly did get the, the email from uh, the angel Gabriel. Do not be afraid, the angel says very famously. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. And uh, this morning I want to think about some questions about the virgin birth. And uh, and Mary asks the first question herself, doesn't she? Because, uh, you know, Mary says, how can this be? Which is, I think, quite a good question to ask. When an angel comes and tells you that you're going to uh, be with child, and uh, you're not even married... And uh, at this point in your life, you haven't had any sexual relationships with somebody else. It's quite a good question to ask, isn't it? How can it be? And, uh, and this is what Mary says. She says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? How can this be? At the nativity play, all was going well. Until the angel appeared and told a little girl playing Mary the news that she was going to have a baby. But how can this be, said Mary, since I am a Viking? Well, Mary didn't say she was a Viking. She said she was a virgin. And uh, Philip Greenslade in his book, The Perfect Gift, says Mary's response encourages us not to sell people short and reduce this scandalous message to something easily acceptable. Like her, we want to ask, 
How is this possible? Like her, we might want to ask, how is this possible? How can it be? How can it be? How can it be? Uh, Because it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And uh, and yet, again, as we've been saying in each of the Sundays uh, during Advent, during Advent and during Christmas time, we are asked to believe in the impossible. We are asked to believe in things that wouldn't normally be possible without God intervening. I've been reading this book in preparation for Christmas, Five Impossible Things to Believe Before Christmas. And uh, it says in it, although the virgin birth is for some one of the most outrageous and unbelievable claims of the Christian faith, it comes from a firm biblical foundations. Luke, with his particular concentration on the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, devotes special attention to it. We are asked to believe in the unbelievable, to believe the impossible. At Christmas time. How can it be? Mary asks the angel. How can it be? How can it be? Well, uh, Tom Wright, the uh, Church of England theologian, says, Ask any newspaper editor what sort of stories sell. Most copies and free categories come swiftly to mind. Sex, royalty and religion. If they combine, be combined, so much the better. Pop star's secret love child is good. Princess has secret affair is better. King's secret night with a nun is better still. He goes on to say, So when people read the story of Gabriel visiting Mary, with the child to be born being the future lord of the world, their minds easily jump in the way the newspapers have conditioned them to do. People have read into the story all sorts of things that aren't there and have failed to notice important things that are. I think that's quite a a significant thing when we ask this question, how can it be? Uh, That we allow our minds to look at the story afresh. As Gary's already already pointed out, these stories are so familiar to us that very often we stop thinking because we think we know what the story is all about. And one of the things that Tom Wright challenges us to do is to look at the story afresh. And, uh, and not to be distracted, in a sense, by the impossible things we're asked to believe, but to take note of the things that the Bible does say about Jesus' birth. The story makes clear that Jesus was conceived in Mary's room before she had any sexual relationships Many people today find this impossible to believe, but they often think this difficulty has only arisen in modern times because of all we know about the precise mechanics of conception and birth. Not so, the ancient world didn't know about X chromosomes and Y chromosomes, but they knew as well as we do that babies were the result of sexual intercourse. I did warn you that we're talking about sex this morning. And that people who claim to be pregnant by any other means might well be covering up a moral and social offence. How can it be? I don't know if you've been watching the uh, the uh, Bible series on Channel 5, but yes, last night they were doing uh, the bit where they're going through the whole Bible and they've got to the bit where, of course, uh, Jesus is born. 
and uh, like all television and film com- companies, they, tell, they tend to fill in the blanks. And it was interesting in the way that they had filled in the blanks because uh, they had a scene of Mary almost about to be stoned in the marketplace because people were discovering that she was pregnant. And of course that's what happened to people uh, in, in her day when they got pregnant out of wedlock or had adultery. We know the story uh, uh, later on in the Gospels of, of, of the Pharisees coming to Jesus with a woman caught in adultery and they were about to stone her. Um, you know, this was uh, as unbelievable then as it is today. But people knew where babies came from. And people knew that it was a result of a man and woman coming together. So when somebody claims that uh, the baby is coming from some other means, everybody would ask the same question. How can it be? How can it be? Well, this morning, of course, we're going to answer that question. We're not just going to leave questions hanging in the air. We're going to answer the question. Because... uh, the angel does answer the question. It's there in the scripture. And sometimes we're distracted, uh, you know, by thinking, well, it's impossible. What, what's happening? The angel actually says, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. There's the answer. Question solved. We understand that, don't we? <laughs> Isn't it great? Isn't it great? And, uh, you know, uh, what we're asked to do is to believe this and accept this by faith. Because the reality is, we can't make sense of it. When we were looking at John's Gospel, we said that John does the, the theology of the nativity. And he simply says, you know, the Word became flesh and dwelt uh, amongst us. He doesn't go into the details. Well, Luke goes into the details and tells us what's happened in a sense in, in which we might think we're still none the wiser. But we are, because... The Bible tells us that this is what happened. And this is where faith comes in. Uh, We don't need faith to believe things that are easily believable. But we do need faith to believe in the impossible. And God asks us to believe in impossible events at Christmas time. Donald Guthrie, in his book New Testament Theology, you probably haven't got this on your bookshelf because it's quite a, a thick and heavy book. But he says... These features contain a remarkable combination of both the manward side, the name Jesus and the human birth, and the Godward side, Son of God. It is noteworthy that Luke in the prologue is at pains to show his intention of writing what he has carefully investigated. And since this opening statement is followed immediately by the birth narrative, there can be no other conclusion but that he believed the virgin birth to be fact. Luke, at the beginning of his Gospel, in the opening verses, uh, points out that he's fully investigated everything from the beginning. And it seemed also to me good to write an orderly account of what happened. So Luke is writing what he believes to be history. He's writing events that he believed actually happened. So when Mary asks, how can it be? Uh, We enter into that question with her and we marvel and we wonder about what God is doing and what God was doing and what God still comes, continues to do. And we often ask the question, don't we? How can this be? How can that be? And sometimes we just have to accept things uh, by faith. The second question I want to pose this morning 
It's who will this be? We've asked the question, how can this be? And the angel has given us an answer. We might not be fully, we might not like the answer, we might not understand the answer, but there is the answer. The second question, and just as important, if not more important, is who will this be? Who will this child be that is to be born of the Virgin Mary? Who will this be? And again, uh, although Mary doesn't ask this question, the angel gives the answer. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you have to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will never end. It's interesting if you look into this story uh, that the angel tells Mary uh, six things that are going to be, that are going to happen. The angel says you'll give birth to a son. The angel says you are to give him the name Jesus. The angel says he will be called the son of the Most High. The angel says that God will give him the throne of his father David. The angel says that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And the angel says... His kingdom will never end. And Mary only asks the angel about the first thing. How can it be? She doesn't ask about all these amazing prophetic things that the angel speaks about who this child will be. You can understand Mary being uh, distracted with that question, how can it be? Uh, We can forgive her for that. But as we come to this scripture, we we mustn't be totally distracted by the how can it be and miss the who will it be because there's a sense in which this is far more important who will this person be who will he be again Tom Wright uh, says far more important for the whole story though is the political meaning Luke gives to the whole event the child to be born will be Messiah the king of the house of David God promised David a descendant who would reign forever not over Israel only but also the whole world. Gary in his, uh, sorry, this is a huge theological claim, much bigger than virgin conception. Jesus is identified with God in a unique way. He is the true ruler of the world. Put all this together, the conception of the baby, the power of God and the challenge to all human empires, and we can see why the story is so explosive. Perhaps that's why it's so controversial. So it's not just the fact that, uh, that Mary is going to uh, give birth to a child without having any sexual relationships with another man, but the angel speaks about the impact that this child is going to have on the nation of Israel. Gary uh, alluded earlier to the fact that Jesus' birth was the answer to many prophecies. And here we see another one of those prophecies. We've heard of the prophecy in Isaiah, but also there's that prophecy uh, that uh, King David, uh, when he uh, makes that covenant with God in 2 Samuel uh, verses uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, verse 14 the Lord declares that to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your fathers I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he shall be my son Again, words 
that were spoken thousands of years before Jesus was born. About a king that would come and reign forever. Whose kingdom would never end. And whose reign would be over the whole world. If you think of the, of the time and again, if you, if you watched uh, uh, the uh, Channel 5 Bible series, again they, 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 they paint the picture of the fact that you know uh, there was a, a Roman uh, occupation of the land. And it was a brutal occupation. And of course, uh, the Roman cry was that Caesar is Lord. Isn't it interesting that the Christian adopt that same phrase, but they want to say Jesus is Lord. There was a political significance in the angel's claims about who this child was going to be. That he was going to be a king. That would, whose kingdom would never end and would rule forever, and this this was a threat. And of course, we know the bit in the you know the bit in the Christmas story that we always miss out, and that we kind of airbrush out. We tend to avoid talking about what King Herod did when he learns about this new king that was going to be born. Well, Channel 5 and the Bible story, don't, don't edit that out and they show you in quite brutal detail Roman soldiers going around and butchering young children. Why? Because the king was threatened by the news of a new king. It was a threat to the society. And we think it's such an, a nice story and we tend to wrap it all up in, you know, in, in Christmas decorations and present it. This uh, message that the angel bring was not only frightening to Mary because of the, 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 the danger it would put her in, but it was a dangerous message for the society. And King Herod recognises the danger. And he sends his soldiers to try and uh, wipe out this newborn king. And it's interesting to notice, right at Jesus' birth, you know, people were trying to kill him. And of course, eventually we know the story. Of course, that's what happens, but in God's plan and in God's time. So who will this be is a very important question to ask about Jesus. And again, the angel answers that question in telling us who this child will be. And of course, this is, it is in this passage that we get this phrase as the angel explains about who Jesus is going to be. The angel says, for nothing is impossible with God. We believe in an impossible God, don't we? Yes, Richard, we do. Because the whole idea of God is impossible itself. If you believe in God, you believe in a supernatural being. And uh, the virgin birth is just as hard to believe as any, any of the other miracles or any of the other things that happen in the Bible. Because it breaks the normality. We talked when we were talking about John 1, you know, about that crack in the universe as God becomes man. And enters in to live amongst us. And when God is amongst us, the impossible happens. For nothing is impossible with God, the angel says. Mary is told, this is uh, uh, John Davis in his book, Be Born in Us Today. Mary is told that her child will be the son of God. One person is to be both human and divine. This is impossible, says the ordinary human mind. This is impossible, says the philosopher of the world. But God is the maker of the impossible possibility. God is the maker of the impossible possibility. 
says John Davis. Who will this be? Uh, This is a king whose kingdom will last forever, whose reign will last forever. So today, Jesus reigns. His kingdom lives on. And we are part of that kingdom here on earth. And every now and again, we see the kingdom breaking through amidst the darkness. Who will this be? And then finally, uh, we've asked, how can this be? We've asked, who can this be? And my final point is just to say, let it be. Because this is what Mary says. This is what Mary says. Some people think that... uh, Uh, That's a picture of uh, Paul McCartney. Some people wonder whether his song, Let It Be, was actually kind of uh, based around Mary's response. Lyrics from his song, When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Some people wonder whether the inspiration of that song comes from uh, this passage in Scripture. Others point out that Paul McCartney's mother was called Mary, so... uh, I'll leave you to ponder that one. Um, But Mary says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said. Let it be. Let it be as you have said, Mary says. And uh, sometimes uh, that's how we have to respond. And we have to say, God, just let it be. Again, John Davis, he says, The consent of the voiceless, voteless Jewish girl is one of the greatest moments of human decision-making in the world's history. Gabriel gives her a voice and a vote. Her reply to Gabriel, tell God, I say yes. I love that. Tell God, I say yes. You've all seen the advert for that orange juice, haven't you? When uh, uh, he says, <laughs> you know it. Yes, tell God, I say yes. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God needs us to say yes. That for God's plans to be worked out, he always works through human beings. He always works through his people. He doesn't work independently of us. He needs us to say yes for his plans to be fulfilled. And for his son to be born. For Emmanuel, for God to be with us. He needed a human being who was willing to say yes. Despite the dangers. Despite the opposition. Despite the trouble that that would bring. And the reality is saying yes to God. It does heap trouble on you. When I was 20 years old I said yes to God. And uh, although I would say it was the greatest decision and I would never regret that decision, it has caused me all sorts of trouble, all sorts of heartache, all sorts of pain. And we shouldn't shy away from recognising that saying yes to God is sometimes a very difficult decision to make. And it won't always mean that life is going to be rosy and that life is going to be straightforward and everything is going to turn out all right. But... For God to work in this world, he needs people who will say yes. And one of the challenges that I want to give us this morning is are we willing to say yes to God? Are you and I willing to say yes to God? To allow him to be born in us. To allow his kingdom to come in this place. To allow him to, through us, reach other people with the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her reply to Gabriel, tell God, I say yes. Let it be. Let it be. 
in his book, uh, Robert Harrison uh, imagines what it must have been like to be one of the angels. And he said, she said, yes, hallelujah, hallelujah, hooray, hallelujah. I am enormously relieved. You may wish to know that Gabriel and I have just performed the most exuberant dance around the office in celebration. We have permission to proceed. Maybe angels are childish as well or childlike. Wasn't it great, you know, after Gary had spoken those words about, uh, you know, being like a child, that the children were just running around the church. And I love that. I just love that because they, they have no uh, inhibition, do they? they? They have no embarrassment. They're just, they're just free. And sometimes, of course, we try to rein in that freedom, don't we? And we want them to sit nice and quietly. And you'll always get some people who say, it's terrible. The children uh, running around and making a noise. I think it's wonderful because that's what children do. And it would seemingly, uh, in Robert Harrison's mind, this is what angels do. They dance and they sing and they shout. And, of course, there is a time and a place where, as adults, you know, we need to be more childlike. Not childish, but childlike in the simple acceptance and the joy. He goes on to say, It's an amazing thing that the greatest plan our boss has ever formed should so totally depend on the goodwill of a tiny creature an experienced angel has to concentrate on very hard even to notice. Imagining what it's like to be an angel. It's a great book if you, if you want to read it, Oriole's Diary. Uh, but again, it just emphasizes the fact that we need to say yes to God. For God to work, be able to work in this world. He can't, he can work without us, but he chooses not to. He chose to become a human being, to live amongst us. To live amongst us and to die amongst us. And the challenge for us today is are we willing to say yes to God? You may have said yes to God 10, 20 years ago like I did. But the thing is, you have to keep saying yes. It isn't that you just say yes. You know, when I married Sue on our, on our wedding day, I, I said those wedding vows. You know, I promised all these things. But if I never told my wife Susan, if I never repeated those promises again and again, uh, she might not realise that I still love her. And God, he doesn't just ask us, it's not just a one-off thing that we say yes to God and then that's it. He continually comes to us and challenges us and waits for our response. Waits for us to say yes. And the reality is sometimes we do say yes, but sometimes we say no. Sometimes we say no because of circumstances, uh, because we don't perhaps notice the angel appearing, or perhaps we're just too busy. And the challenge as we approach uh, this Christmas season is like Mary, to take that dangerous and risky step of saying yes to God. And you never know where that might lead.